Religion. Religion. Most of the world's seven and a half billion people are religious people. In fact, by most estimates, 85 to 90% of the world's population hold to some form of religion or another. So you do the math on that, it's more than 6 billion people out there today who are turning and twisting in some fashion, trying to win the approval of a particular god or gods. And among those 6 billion, the vast majority believe that they can earn the approval of their god or the approval of their gods by some combination of religious ritual and good works. Islam, Hinduism, Roman Catholicism, Sikhism, Mormonism, Unitarian Universalists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Taoism, Druze, Confucianism, and more. Culturally, all of those religions appear different from the outside, and their rituals and prayers are going to look different as well, whether it's prayer rugs or the rosary or meditation or bowing down or standing up or some type of altered state of consciousness or just plain charity work or door knocking, whatever it might be, they all look different, but at their core, they have something in common. Each is pursuing a moral code that will in some fashion benefit them in this life or in the next. Literally today, billions of people are doing that. Which begs the question, why is salvation by works the, pre- the predominant theme in religion all over the world? And I think the answer is because it seems right to a man. It just seems right to human nature. Human beings desire to be in control of everything. And if you disagree with that, you're probably lying. We desire to be in control of everything, especially when it comes to our eternal destiny. And there's nothing quite as satisfying to our pride than to be able to say that we did it ourselves. That we somehow earned it or we made it by our own effort and spirituality. It feeds us. It feeds our arrogance. It feeds our pride. Human beings tend to see religion like a spiritual ledger. You just have to have, at the end of your life, more credits than debits. Your good things just have to outweigh your sins, and you'll be fine. Most people on this globe, this spinning planet that we live on, believe that their God grades on a curve. And of course, everybody believes that they're on the good end of that curve. So it's natural that men everywhere would create their own religious systems that are propped up by some form of salvation by works. But scripture tells us a different story. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Be warned. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Today we are, I'm going to put up a put this up on the screen. Today we come to the end of the first of five many books within the book of Romans. Today, as we get to verses 19 and 20 in chapter 3, we come to the end of the book of sin, which started way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And next time we're together, we get to get into the book of salvation, which begins with chapter 3, verse 21. So praise the Lord after about seven months of laying this really essential foundation of universal sin and guilt. Praise the Lord. Next week, 
we get to jump in and really look at the beauty of the gospel, saving faith in Jesus Christ. I want to thank uh, Ryan Carell for doing such a... Where's Ryan? There you are. For doing such a great job two Sundays ago. Uh, he came in and he exposited verses 9 to 18, if you look at chapter 3. And those are difficult passages. I mean, when I handed him that task, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I know he did a great job. So, Ryan, thank you for your faithfulness in doing that. But that passage, those verses 9 to 18, guys, it lays us bare and exposed before a holy God. All of humanity lives and breathes under the penalty of sin, both Jew and Gentile, and nobody escapes it. The language is so challenging here. Using a series of Old Testament quotes, Paul makes the case that none of us are righteous. We don't want to hear that, do we? Human beings do not want to hear that. None of us are righteous, not even one. In our natural condition, none of us understands because we're spiritually blind. And so not one of us has the desire to seek after God on our own. None of us has the ability to seek after God. On his own. Natural man lives in a constant state of rebellion against the Creator. There is no fear of God before his eyes, and so no honor is paid to God and no thanks are given to the Creator. Paul says, Our lips are filled with poison, our throats are an open grave, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood. The life of human beings on this earth is full of destruction. And misery, he says. And by the way, if you doubt that, I know that we can have little periods of happiness and joy, but if you doubt that that is true, look at the breadth of human history, and you will see that Paul is spot on in his diagnosis of human nature. And now at the end of this incredible indictment of humanity, today we come to the sort of the summary statements here in verses 19 and 20. Look at it with me. Hear God's word this morning. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now the imagery that Paul's using here is what we call judicial. This is something of a a cosmic courtroom scene. The evidence against the accused has been presented at this point. The defendant now stands before the judge, but he has nothing to say. He can mount no defense before this awesome judge. There is no defense. So he stands there with his mouth closed, awaiting the sentencing. Now the Greek word that's, that's translated here, accountable, in verse 19, is the only time this word is used in the entire Bible. But scholars have found it used by other Greek writers, other literature outside the Bible. And in every case, it refers to a legal case. It refers to a person who is under judgment and is facing punishment. So the image that Paul is drawing here is very clear. All of humanity, the sum total of humanity, stands before the judgment seat of God with no excuse and no defense for their sinfulness. Humanity simply waits in silence for God to pronounce the sentence. And into that silence, what Paul's saying is here, the law speaks. What's the law? We talked about it several weeks ago. It's, it's in concentric circles, starting at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and going out from there, broadening even to the entire Old Testament. But the law speaks into this silence. 
the law here is being used as a measuring stick of righteousness. It would be as, as if I called somebody up and I took a tall measuring stick and I said, hey, come on up here, measure yourself against this. Only God's using the law as the measuring stick. And he says, come, humanity, stand up against this. How does man measure up? Not good. It's ironic. Some people spend their entire lives on earth pretending that that measuring stick doesn't even exist. Some of them spin around trying to break the stick. Some of them try to work on their posture and stand up as straight as possible so that someday when they get to the measuring stick, they will be as tall as possible and maybe in their own strength, they'll measure up. But it's impossible. In the end, the measurement is this. All of humanity has come up short. None are righteous and all deserve judgment. Now, the logic of Paul's argument here is not difficult to understand. In fact, it comes in four basic steps. I'll walk you through it briefly. Step number one is simply this, and we see this in the first half of verse, of verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is it that is under the law or in the law? It's the Jews. They've been privileged to receive the very oracles of God. First and foremost, God spoke to his chosen people, Israel, beginning there at Mount Sinai. Step two, the second half of verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So the goal and the effect of speaking to this one chosen and privileged people, the Jews, was to silence the mouth of all of humanity. Catch that now. He spoke to the Jews so that all of humanity's mouth will be shut. We'll get, more to, the, we'll get to that a little bit later. Step three, the first half of verse 20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. This is why every mouth will be silenced. Because none will be justified by their works. And lastly, step number four, second half of verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now we want to dig in deeper into this. Because there's so much important stuff in there. And I have found sometimes when you're looking at the logic of, especially Paul... And especially in the book of Romans, because it's such a logical book, is to sometimes start from the back and work your way to the front. And that's the best way, I believe, to work through this. So we're going to start back in step number four and look back at this. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does that mean, the knowledge of sin? Now, many people would say, well, that's simple. It means that the law teaches us what, what sin is. The law teaches us how to live and how not to live. But that's really not what Paul's saying here. That doesn't actually fit with his argument. The best way to understand what Paul means by that phrase, the knowledge of sin, comes from Romans chapter 7. Now, I hate to been trying throughout the study so far to stay in the moment and not get ahead of ourselves, but sometimes we have to. So I want to look at this, this passage in Romans 7, and we'll get an understanding of what Paul means by the knowledge of sin. This is Romans 7, 7 and 8. It says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. That's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 3 when he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what it is. When the law meets an unregenerate heart, somebody who lives without the Holy Spirit, the effect of the law is that it reveals to us what's going on in our hearts, the rebellion in our hearts. It makes our sinfulness 
known to us. It brings it out. And maybe a good way to think about this is, uh, and, and hopefully you didn't have this experience as a teenager because I'm not talking about you. This is, I'm just making this up. But imagine this, a teenager goes to pick up the mail at the mailbox. Teenager goes to the mailbox to get the mail. He brings it back and he puts it on the, the kitchen counter. And he flips through it and, he, and he's looking for something for himself, but he doesn't see anything at all. So he begins to walk away, right? So far, there's no sin going on here, right? No, no bad desires or anything like that. But then, just as he's walking away, he looks at one envelope, and it says at the top, for parents only. Mmm. Mmm. And suddenly, a desire wells up within him to open that envelope and to read it. Now, are those words on the envelope sin? Of course not. But through those words came the knowledge of sin in the heart of that teenager. What was lying dormant in his heart was suddenly brought out. The desire to read what what one ought not to read. That's what Paul's talking about here. The same thing is true with the law. It stirs up rebellion in the hearts of, of people who don't have the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means. Now, let's move on to step number three in this. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why is that true? Because of what we've just learned. Everywhere the law meets an unregenerate heart without the Holy Spirit, it awakens rebellion, not faith. What's required for salvation? Faith. Does the law produce faith in us? No. The law produces rebellion. It makes sin known to us. Listen to Galatians 3, 11 and 12. That no one is justified by the law before God is evident, Paul writes. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. It's not of faith. The law has the power to make sin known to us, but it has no power to overcome sin in us. I hope that makes sense. Therefore, the law cannot justify. It can only condemn. The law is not life-giving. It's actually death-giving. Because it only makes sin known, it doesn't overcome sin. The law cannot make anyone right with God because it doesn't have the power to do so. Something greater than the law was required to justify us before the Lord. Look at Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Amen, right? Praise the Lord. God did it because the law was weak in our flesh. God did this. What did he do? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. I know this is getting kind of technical, but if you don't understand the nature and the purpose of the law, you're going to have a hard time throughout the book of Romans. So this is critically important. Let me make a clarification at this point. We're going to see Paul talk over and over again how the law in itself is not defective. The law, in fact, is good and it is holy. It is simply weak because of who? Because of us. Because of our flesh. Because of our sinful condition. Here's another really important verse in this argument. Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 18 and 19 says, There is a setting aside of a former commandment, that's the old system, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. What's that? That's Christ, through which we draw near to God. One of the most important themes in the book of Hebrews is this idea of the insufficiency of the Mosaic system to save human beings from wrath and from the power of sin. 
and on the flip side to reveal a greater and more fully sufficient sacrifice for sin in the blood of Christ who delivers us and saves us. So the author of Hebrews writes about the weakness of the old way, showing the audience that the intention of the law was to point human beings to something greater that was to come in the future, the new covenant found in the blood of Christ. And he does this by examining various parts of the old system, three things in particular. First of all, he talks about the animal sacrifices that were made under the old system. And he says this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices were intended only to awaken a sense of guilt within the Jews. To cause them to look to the mercy of God into a future day when God would make full atonement for sin by way of his own son. Another example is the Jewish priesthood. The men who stood between God and man but were unable to take away their sins. Why? Because they too were imperfect sinners. They too were in need of atonement. They could only foreshadow and show the Jews that a great high priest would come in the future. But they could do nothing to take away sin. And finally, one last example, the very moral law that was delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai. It had no power to bring about obedience in the Jews. It only had the fearful power of producing this knowledge of sin, this awareness of sin. So the goal was to show the Israelites that they were actually living in a ruined and helpless condition. This was the goal. This was the purpose of the law. And so God gave his chosen people this long list of burdensome rules. Do you know how many commands are in the the old system? 613 commands, according to the rabbis, were given under the old covenant. A trial and a test to see if if they could live up to each and every one of them. To see if they could essentially earn salvation and function as their own redeemer. A long and burdensome list, sacrifices, offerings, observances. It was as if God was saying to them, look, you're guilty. You know it in your heart. In fact, my wrath righteously lives within your consciousness. So go ahead and see if you can free yourself from it. If you can. Come before me. Bring a sacrifice. But when, you're, when you found that your conscience isn't relieved and you find that you're still corrupt and sinful, then turn away from your own power. Turn away from your own offerings and look to me. Look to my power. Look to my offering on your behalf. It's essentially what God was saying through the law. So what was the result of that? Did the Jews respond positively? No, they missed it. They missed it. They were blinded by their stubbornness and pride. They failed to grasp the true meaning and the intent of what God had given them what he had established under the old covenant. And rather than seeing it as a means to an end, they saw the law as the end itself. They saw rote observances and ritual sacrifices as the end goal. And they missed it. Worship in the Israelite camp became mechanical. It became mechanical, which can happen to us, by the way, if we're not careful, right? Just going through the motions, rote observances, customs, but no engagement of the heart. And predictably over time, their consciences were seared. The intent of the law lost its power to really awaken guilt within them, that they might look to God and be saved. Not because God had failed, not because the law had failed, but because of their sinful flesh. So it shouldn't be a surprise. When we open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we look at the condition of the Jews at the time that Christ walked the earth, those chosen guardians of all of this truth, 
had grown more and more self-righteous. They had grown more and more spiritually blind over time. This covenant, you guys, was designed to give the Jews to make them humble so that they would cry out with Isaiah, Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people who are unclean. That was the point of the law, but instead we see the leaders of the Jews in the time of Christ saying what? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those people. I thank you that I'm not a sinner like them. They had grown self-righteous and proud. Think about this. Because the Jews had completely mistaken the nature and the purpose of the old covenant, they had They trusted in the blood of animals. They became the most bitter opponents of the arrival of the new covenant. The most bitter opponents of the blood of Christ himself. Because they'd failed the test. I've heard some preachers say that the best way to think of the law is to think of it like a diagnosis that a doctor gives you. No diagnosis will ever heal you from a sickness. Did you know that? It doesn't make the diagnosis bad. In fact, it's good and it's beneficial to know what's wrong. But no di- take, take your diagnosis home and see if it'll heal you. It won't. It doesn't have the power to do it. You need the remedy, right? You need the cure, a remedy that comes from the sovereign hand of God himself, sending his son in the fullness of time to take on flesh, to sacrifice for the sins of mankind. You need more to diagnosis. You need the remedy. Isn't that true? So there you have steps four and three. The law awakens sin, not faith. When it meets our flesh, and therefore by the works of the law, not one of us will be justified. The law was not designed to do it, and it has no power to do it. Now, still moving backwards in Paul's argument. The next question is, how do those steps, three and four, help us understand verse 19? Let's look at steps one and two, going back to verse 19. Now we know... Now we know that wherever, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Again, that's our obvious reference here to the Jews, right? And what's the purpose of the law being given to the Jews? So that every mouth may become closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So in the world of logic, we call this an argument from greater to lesser. Here's what that means. The Jews are the greater in this case. Why are they greater than the Gentiles? Because they have all these spiritual advantages given to them. Right, the chosen people of God, the covenants, the ordinances, all these things have been given. They are the greater in this situation. If any people could benefit from having received the law, it would be the Jews, right? If any people could have been justified by the law, it would be who? The Jews. They're the greater in this situation, but they haven't been justified. And if it's not true of the greater, it's certainly not true of the lesser. Those are the Gentiles. Theologian Doug Moo, who's written really, I think, the best commentary on Romans, puts it this way. If the Jews, God's chosen people, cannot be excluded from the scope of sin's tyranny, then it surely follows that Gentiles, who have no claim on God's favor, are also guilty. Wow. Now, most of us in the room this morning are Gentiles. So this is pretty personal, right? As Gentiles, we can't just stand here and say, well, it's the Jews' fault. My mouth is closed because they blew it. Because we're responsible for our own sin, are we not? All of us here are naturally legalists and moralists. We want to justify ourselves before God. We want to to throw up our good works and say, Here, God, aren't you impressed? 
We want to defend the idea that we're, we're good enough for heaven, or at least we're better than everybody else. This is how we're born, folks. This is how we are naturally. And get this, we naturally despise the idea that somebody else's merit would be applied to us. We don't need it, thank you very much, we're fine. That's who we are in our natural state. As Gentiles, we weren't given the law at Mount Sinai. That's not our burden. So it's a logical question to say, well then, as Gentiles, why can't we do enough good things to make it to heaven? Maybe a better question is this. Is there anything in the performance of a human work that is able to remove the guilt of a previously committed sin? Have you ever thought this through? And this is great for those of us with a Roman Catholic background. Is there anything in your good works that has the power to atone for another sin? The answer is no. If I tell a hurtful lie to somebody on Monday, and I hurt that person, and I lie, but on Tuesday I go out of my way to be kind to somebody else, does that kindness on Tuesday somehow atone for my sin on Monday? I mean, that's the logic when we start talking about salvation by works. No, it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't satisfy the injustice of Monday just because I was kind on Tuesday. Our works have no atoning power. Our works have no power to satisfy injustice. I know I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. It's, some of you guys have heard me say this in, in private. It's the red light illustration. If I run a red light and I get pulled over by a policeman, right? isn't that an awful feeling? You look in the mirror, red lights. You know you've done it, right? You get pulled over by the policeman and he begins to write you a ticket and you say, well, look, officer, this doesn't make sense to me. In the past, I've always obeyed the law. All my life, I've only run through green lights, except this one time. So surely all those green lights in my past make up for this one red light. Try that. <laughs> Try that with a cop. He will laugh in your face. Or you say, well, look, I tell you what, officer, I, I admit it. I sinned. I owe, I owe a debt. Right? I owe a debt to society. I sinned. I made a mistake. I ran this red light. My promise is that next week I will do nothing but green lights. Surely that will pay for it. Right? That will cancel it out. He's going to go, uh-huh, as he continues to write. Why doesn't that fly? Because the expectation is that you obey the law. You don't get brownie points for going through green lights. Did you know that? You don't get credits. There's not there's some policeman going, another green light. Good for you. Boy, you're racking up all kinds of credits. Why do we think this? It doesn't make any sense. The expectation is that we obey the law. But you do owe a debt whenever you do what is wrong. No matter how many good things you've done, when you have a debt, you owe a debt. So the only way to be saved on your own merits is to be perfect, to never sin, to love God and neighbor completely in every possible way, to obey all of God's commands without a single failure. And of course, we know that we are not able to do that, and so we acknowledge that our sins can never be removed unless we look to the mercy of God. This was the point of the law. This is what the Jews missed. They should have known that that animal that they were bringing couldn't possibly atone for their sin. That they needed the mercy of God. That they needed a greater sacrifice. And so in God's courtroom, every single mouth is stopped. Both Jew and Gentile 
Every mouth will be silent before God. So what are the implications? I wrote down three things. And they're not, they're not difficult things. This really is the big theme of, chapter, of, of the first three chapters of Romans, right? Everybody in the whole world is guilty before God. This, really, this is why Paul starts in, in, in beginning in verse 118 till now. Why he spends so much time laying this foundation. Because if we don't get this, we don't start at the right place, you won't end up at the right place. And you start with the bad news. Everybody is guilty. You're guilty. Apart from Christ, I'm guilty and you're guilty. Your whole family is guilty apart from Christ. Your kids, your spouse, they're guilty. Everybody at your school is guilty. In your workplace, your next door neighbor is guilty. The bus driver is guilty, right? The, the girl who helped you at McDonald's is guilty. Even the barista at Starbucks, guilty. Every nation on the earth, not just here in America, but in Canada and Mexico and the Middle East and France and Russia and China and South Korea and Uganda and South Africa, every nation on earth filled with guilty people. This is the sobering truth, folks, that we are to carry with us each and every day as we go through life. That we are surrounded by people that apart from Christ are guilty with the wrath of God hanging over their heads. And to look for opportunities to share truth. That's where we all start. Guilty before God, apart from Christ. Number two, every human mouth will be closed before the Lord. This is an amazing truth. From the most primitive people, primitive tribe in some jungle in South America, to the most sophisticated university lecture hall. Nobody will be able to say a word before the judgment seat of God. All will be silent before the creator of the universe. Every mouth will be closed. I don't know about you, I hear about people being very arrogant all the time, thumbing their nose at God, mocking people who who trust in him, right? They feel self-qualified to pass judgment on God. They say, well, if God was real, he would do this and he would do that. Ma, 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 ma. Right? Blah, 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 blah. Mouth, mouth flying, fingers on the keyboard, right? Every one of those mouths will be silenced at the judgment seat of God. Trust it. Know it's true. When they perish, they will know the truth. They will meet him in that courtroom, and all boasting will cease. The message is this. Get right with God now, because nobody will mock him on that day. And you will have no defense when you stand before the judgment seat. Trust in Christ alone. Lastly, because of one and two, don't fear the opinions and words of men. Why do we live in constant fear of men, of what they think of us, of what they they say to us? Are we not confident in what we believe? Why would we be shaken? Fear God alone. Don't be discouraged by what you see going on around us. Yeah, guess what? Social progressivism is winning in America. Atheism is growing. The haters are everywhere. It's been prophesied. Why would we be shaken up by it? Be confident. Don't fear, man. Psalm 27, 14 says this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. I want to wrap up with just some good news because this is heavy stuff, right? By the way, Romans is a heavy book. Have Have I said that yet? Heavy book. But let's close with some good news. The good news is that in our wretched condition, we have a great physician. 
We have the diagnosis and the remedy and a great physician. We have a healer who heals and a savior who saves. Amen. To that end, let's look at what's coming the next time we get together. Verses 21 and 22. As we transition to the book of salvation, look what it says. But now, apart from the law, those are great words, apart from the law, which only condemns. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been made known to us. It's been revealed to the world. And it's witnessed by both the law and the prophets. The Old Testament witnesses to this righteousness. Even the righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. That is one of the most significant changes in Scripture. When I say change, I mean by transition. That but. What a great transition. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The law given to Israel is good, folks. It brought about the knowledge of sin, but is weak because of us, because of our sinful flesh, and it cannot justify you. And so what the law could not do, God did. He sent the remedy in his son. That's the good news for this morning. I'll close with this quote. William Shedd, who's a great 19th century Uh, theologian put it this way he said this the divine law is waved like a flashing sword before the eyes of men not because it can make him alive but because it can slay him are you sitting here this morning honestly are you sitting here this morning trusting in your goodness are you sitting here this morning thinking i've done enough i'm good enough i'm better than most that flashing sword is before your eyes it will not save you but it will slay you. Stop it. The law can never justify you. Shed continues, therefore I will answer all accusations of law and conscience by pleading one thing and one thing only, what my Lord has done for me. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray.